Should we get serious for at least a few minutes? I know we all, now you should still be full from that brunch we had out there. So I should be with a pretty good crowd out here, not going, finish up, we have dinner to get to. Cause we had, there was more food out there. I think we could eat, what do you think Carol? Probably for another, there was at least a few loaves and fishes left that we'd be, we'd be in good shape. So, and to all of you, thank you for bringing such wonderful stuff for our brunch, our time together. Uh, Easter really is about the family of God coming together to worship Jesus, and we had a wonderful, wonderful time together. Would you pray with me? Father, as we open your word now, we ask that you would give us eyes to see Jesus. Jesus, you're alive, and you've given us your spirit, and you've given us your spirit that you would take all the things that you've accomplished in your life, in your death, in your resurrection, and in the reality that you were ascended to the right hand of the throne of high in heaven, and that we are here to worship the glorified, risen, ascended King. So give us eyes to see the beauties of you and your word. Show us, Father, in a sense, our place in your story. Apply the word to our lives, that we don't just see this as a, a wonderful story that, yes, we may believe in, but it doesn't have impact in our lives, show us the impact that it has functionally in our lives. Apply your word to our lives, to our day-to-day living. In Jesus' name, amen. If you turn with me, I'm going to look at the Gospel of John, John chapter 11, and we'll read just three small verses, and then I'll give you a little bit of the context of the narrative that it falls in. These are Jesus' words that were spoken to Martha, and this is around the time when Martha and her sister Mary just lost their brother Lazarus, and Martha is questioning Jesus, and Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He asked Martha, and Martha responded. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And friends, this is the word of the Lord. Andrew said something earlier during our living church time when he was reading from the catechism that was so appropriate, and that is that the resurrection changes everything. That is so true. I think every age likes to think of theirs as kind of the historical age. This is our moment. This is our time. Truthfully, there was only one time that really changed everything in the world and changed everything in history, and it was the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was the climactic moment, time in history. That was truly the only revolutionary time that changed everything. The challenge is that I want to proclaim to you and share with you is the same one Jesus gave to Martha. Do you believe this? I believe that's the question Jesus is asking you this morning whether for the first time or whether you have been coming to church for 40 years, do you believe this? And not just believe that it's a historical fact, but do you trust it? Do you give your life to this? Do you make your boast in Jesus Christ alone? Do you surrender to him in his life and his death and his resurrection? Do you worship him and live for and give yourself to his glory and his kingdom and his new world, the very new creation that he inaugurated and that he launched on that first Easter morning. 
We're going to look at this particular text this morning, and I just want to look at it from three brief perspectives. Three things. I want us to look at the foundation, I want us to look at our future, and I want us to look at the fruit. In other words, the foundation of the resurrection, resurrection foundation, your resurrection future. And the third is basically what difference does it make in your day-to-day life and your presence? The resurrection fruit. First of all, the foundation. There's a PCA pastor, Russ Whitfield is his name, and he has this line, he says, Good Friday tells the truth about the ugliness of, the, of this world. Easter tells the truth about the beauty of the world to come. I want you to look at the context of this narrative for a second and put yourself, if you would, in Martha's shoes. Okay? The context of this in John chapter 11, okay, and I could have printed out the entirety of the scripture, but then, then you really would be mad, about, mad at me and missing your dinner if I had read the whole chapter. But the context of this, early on in, chapters, in verses 1 and 2, Mary and her sister Martha basically send for Jesus, telling Jesus, we have an urgent concern. Our brother, Lazarus, whom we love, whom you love, is ill. He's dying. Get Jesus, get him quickly then Jesus does something that he has this way of being dumbfounding to us that we don't always make sense, you know, that doesn't make sense to us. Jesus holds off for a couple days before he comes. I could just picture Martha and Mary kind of going, "Um, did he not hear us? Did he catch a stomach bug? What's going on that he's not? Because in the meantime, their brother Lazarus dies. Now picture, and then Jesus comes on the scene, and of course Jesus tells them, basically tells them, chill out, relax, I've got this. But I want you to put yourself in Martha's shoes, because these are Jesus' words to Martha. And then in a few verses he'll talk to Mary. I'm focusing on what he said to Martha, though, for a second. But put yourself in Martha's shoes. My brother is sick. He's dying. He's on his deathbed. He eventually, Jesus, where are you? Aren't you coming? She must have felt confusion, grief, pain, lost, a sense of, whole, a sense of hopelessness. What is going on? And it's to Martha that Jesus makes this radical, revolutionary claim, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, what do we learn from this? What is the foundation? There are two things to the foundation. The first is that resurrection always presupposes death. It's just a reality. Death and resurrection go together. They are inseparably connected. Death is the ugliness of the Good Friday world. Death is the wages, the result of sin. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, it means that Jesus must first go through the pain, the torture, the reality, the ugliness, the separation of death. I am the resurrection and the life means I will first undergo, I will face, I will enter into every ounce of that tyrant called death that you must face. He's promising life, but he's not escaping, he's not bypassing, he's not going around. Even though he is God in the flesh, he is not bypassing the root of death. And why is he doing that? He's doing that for us. See, one commentator put it, and we kind of sang this in one of our praise songs that we sang earlier. 
when Jesus is crucified, something happened. And the result is the powers that were locked, that had locked up the world, the powers of corruption, of decay, and death are overthrown. And Jesus is, from now on, running the show. See, when we had sinned, power was given to death because of sin. And because of this, death is able to rule as a tyrant over humanity. And I want you to think about something for just a second. I want you to think about what it cost God the Father to give up his son. See, all this was at the Father's initiative. All this was the action of the Father. And I want you to think about something for a second. How much do you think the Father loved the Son? What was the nature of their relationship? Think about from all eternity, God the triune God who has no beginning, who has no end, who is self-existent and eternal, always loved, always deferred, always lived for one another. What did it cost God to give up, to hand over, to turn over his son unto death? And then I want you to think, why did he do it? He did it because he loves us. He did it because he loves you. And now I want to ask you the same question Jesus put to Martha. Do you believe this? And I know we all go, well, of course I do. I believe God loves me. Do we? Because I think if we did, we wouldn't get nearly as defensive as we do. We wouldn't get nearly as driven as we do. We wouldn't be nearly as insecure, nearly as tribal, nearly as keeping to ourselves, nearly as isolating, nearly as selfish, nearly as self-centered, if we really believed that he genuinely, irrevocably loved us. Do you believe he loves you and that he gave up his son for you, for nothing but love, because you were his beloved? And do you surrender to that? Because what is resurrection? It is life out of death. The second part of the foundation is you need to recognize this is historical fact. This is historical reality. See, maybe you're sitting here and you're going, Jeff, that sounds good, but I'm not quite convinced. I have my doubts. I'm a little skeptical. That's okay. I'm actually glad you came. I'm glad you're here if you have doubts and are skeptical. That's a good thing. See, let me tell you a story, because about 30 years after the events of this, churches were starting to spring up all over the world, the Mediterranean world there, and the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, he, he has quite a history of his own, and I won't go into all that, but he was one of the first missionary theologians who would go out and start churches and raise up pastors and raise up elders and and begin to do this, and he went to a place in Corinth and started a church there. And they were doubting the reality, the historical reality of the resurrection. And this is what he wrote to them. He says, now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve, 
After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me as one abnormally born. Now, what is he doing here? He is highlighting the reality, the historical evidence for the resurrection. And look how he's doing it. He's going through the various post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. He doesn't give what I would call an exhaustive list, but it sure seems pretty close. Because look what he does. He says, first he says, and he's basically saying, he goes, don't believe me if you don't want to believe me, but, but let me tell you a few things. See Peter over there? Go talk to him. If he's not enough, how about the other apostles? Probably not Judas, you know, but talk to the other apostles. Then he says, 10 or 11, they're not enough? Okay, that's fine. There's 500 other brothers. Go hold some interviews. Take them to lunch. Have coffee with them. Go talk to the 500 and see, did they see the resurrected Jesus? Are there 500 liars? What do you think? Not enough yet? Let's go to Jesus' own family. Let's take his brother James. Hang out with James, the leader of the Jerusalem church, and see how he came from skepticism and doubt to belief. And then finally, I'll put myself last as one abnormally born because what was my story? I was basically hating the Christians, persecuting them, and then the resurrected Jesus grabbed hold of me on the road to Damascus. What is he doing? He is basically delivering a knockout blow to their doubts by saying, this is, I, this is not myth, this is not fiction, this is not a story, this is fact, this is history, this is truth. Go at, are, is everybody lying? Because everybody's giving, they're saying they were eyewitnesses. So how can you, now members of the Corinthian church, begin to question the reliability the historical reality of the resurrection. And you ask, what difference does it make? Let me just give one practical application. Because knowing the historical foundation, knowing the reality of the resurrection, gives us security in an insecure world. Gives us refuge in a dangerous world. One of my favorite authors is a man by the name of Henry Nouwen, and he says, every single human heart is longing for home because home is a place of safety. Home is a place of security. Home is a place where you find refuge from the dangerous world. Jesus saying, I am the resurrection and the life is saying, I am the true home your heart is longing for. Do you believe this? I am your true security. You may love your family. You may have an awesome family. They are not your security. You may have a job that you love and a career you're very successful at. That is not your true security. You may have your health right now. You may be out doing all sorts of exercise and be in great shape. That is not your security. There is only one thing that can be an ultimate security in this world, and his name is Jesus, who is the resurrection and who is the life. He rules and he reigns and he is king, not in the future, right now. That's our foundation. But that's not all, because he also guarantees our future. Look what he says to Martha. Right after he says, I am the resurrection and the life, 
He says, he who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. I don't know about what you think, but that's an amazing future. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Take a look at this. How can that be? Well, Jesus is explaining here the ministry of the resurrection, and he says that there are two parts to it, two things. And when you look at it at face value, they seem to contradict, but, but they don't. Let me explain. First of all, he says, if you believe in me, when you die, later on you will live. He's talking there about our literal, physical resurrection. He is saying that, and again, I couldn't teach from every passage in the New Testament, every passage in the Bible about the resurrection, but there's one passage, again, 1 Corinthians 15, where Jesus calls himself the first fruits. First fruits means he's the beginning. He's the first of the harvest to come. Guess what we are? We're the harvest. His resurrection guarantees our resurrection. And then there's another place, John chapter 21, or 20 and 21, if you take them together, where we see some aspects of Jesus' resurrection. Did you realize he did things like ate fish? Mortality puts on immortality. The perishable puts on imperishable. He was raised with a real physical body. Do you know what that means for us as the harvest coming after the first fruits? Our future is not only an ethereal, spiritual future, it is a physical future. We will eat, we will drink, we will make art, we will make music. We will live, we will dance, we will fly. I will someday get to play Augusta National Golf Course. I can't wait for a glorify Augusta National. I think that will be so cool. That is my bucket list, by the way. The point being, if anybody is thinking to themselves, the afterlife, heaven, the new heavens and new earth is a boring place, look at the resurrection life of Jesus. He went fishing. He came through walls. He came through doors. It is a physical existence. But then there's something else because he says, and this may seem contradictory, but it's not. He says, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Well, wait a second. We just said you'll die and then you'll live. Now you'll never die? What is he talking about? He's talking about there that there's not only a future physical resurrection, But the moment you believe in Jesus, there is a present, there is an immediate spiritual resurrection. You become alive with Jesus. The Holy Spirit does something. The fancy word, the doctrine is called regeneration. In other words, he regenerates you. He brings you. That was the meaning when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus at night. And he said, you must be born again. And Nicodemus asked a question that any, what do you mean born again? I'm about 42 years old. What do you mean? I go back in my mother's womb? He says, no, it's a renewal. It's a spiritual resurrection. You come to life. In other words, he says, the possibility of guilt-free living. There is therefore now no condemnation in Christ. You're loved. You can live without shame. You can live with a new moral courage. You can live without a deadness inside. Isn't Easter a time of joy? Even if you're going through amazing, unbelievable pain right now. And Jesus entered into that and entered into that. There can be joy because you have spiritual resurrection now, authentic life even in the midst of that pain. You can look at it honestly and authentically. One of the amazing, I love this particular prophecy out of the Old Testament. I can't wait someday to meet Ezekiel. 
Ezekiel's one of those guys you don't hear a lot about. Preachers don't talk about Ezekiel. I picked Easter Sunday to talk about Ezekiel. What's wrong with me sometimes? But in Ezekiel chapter 37, the Lord takes the prophet Ezekiel to a valley. And the valley is filled with dry bones. Dry bones everywhere. Gloom, despair, hopelessness, death, all the way around. And the Lord says to Ezekiel, I want you to speak to these dry bones. And Ezekiel speaks the word of the Lord by the power of the word of the Lord. He speaks to the dry bones and they come to life. And the text says they have skin, they have flesh, they have sinews, and they have the breath of life. That is a prophecy, that is a picture of the spiritual resurrection that the moment we believe in Jesus, or before we actually believe in Jesus, because the Spirit regenerates us before we believe in Jesus, we have flesh, we have sinews, we, leave, we come to life again. Spiritual resurrection, which he says, whoever believes in me will never die, because you will have that spiritual resurrection forever. So you have a foundation. It's pretty secure. You have a future. It is amazingly wonderful. What difference does it make in how we live in the here and now? What fruit, in other words, does it bear? How does it impact and affect how we live in our present? Remember we said the moment we believe, we're, we're regenerated, we have that spiritual resurrection, where the deadness inside is gone, guilt-free living, we have new life. Paul puts it this way in Colossians chapter 3. He says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Now think about this. What does this mean? Remember that earlier I said that the powers that have locked up the world in corruption, decay, and death have been overthrown? Well, one of the things Paul is saying is that when we become a Christian, we're actually united to Jesus Christ so that his death becomes our death, his resurrection becomes our resurrection. We have died and been risen with Christ, meaning the link with the old, with corruption and decay and death, has been broken. That link has been severed, and a new link has been forged. A link with new life, new vitality, new vibration, Vibrancy, the new order of things. A link has been established with a new order of things. And then Paul is saying, the way we live, the impact is, you are to set your mind, you are to set your heart, you are to set your affections, you are to set the basic orientation of your life on the things of God. The basic center of your life changes from death to life. The basic orientation of of your life centers from yourself to revolving around God and Jesus Christ. You make it your aim, your agenda. You basically are seeking out his interests, his agenda, his ambitions, his values. And do you want to know what his values and his ambitions and his agenda is? Because it's bigger than just us as individuals. See, he's actually reconciling and renewing the whole world. And he's inviting us to join with him. This is his work, but he's inviting us to the party. 
He is inviting us to the party of joining with him in the renewal of all things. One commentator put it this way. He said, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. That, after all, is what the Lord's Prayer is all about. Think about that prayer that we pray every Sunday. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, your will be done. Where? This is the participatory part of the sermon, by the way. I should have given you a better heads up. This is the part where you help me out, and I make sure you're still paying attention. Your will be done on earth. So using Hebrew poetry that Jesus would have known very well with parallel lines, he says, your kingdom come, and then parallel amplifying that, he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, becoming a Christian and living the Christian life and practicing resurrection, so to speak, since then you've been raised with Christ, practicing this resurrection life is not about, oh, thank you, Jesus, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, you're you're getting me, you're escaping me from this big bad world, you're taking me out, all I got to do is wait it out. No, God has launched a project. He is renewing the world. In the context, remember he's begun, remember the quote I read for you, he's begun the beauty of the new world in the context of the ugliness of this world. They kind of run on parallel tracks right now. But he's calling us to colonize earth with his will, with the life, with the values, with the agenda. Basically, the things, what are the things that Jesus likes? He likes freedom. He likes love. He likes justice. He likes beauty. He likes truth. He likes goodness. He likes reconciliation. And he is saying to his people, my beloved, you're my toolbox through which we are implementing this new world project. Now, does that mean we go out and change the world? Absolutely not. What it means is in our ordinary life, in our ordinary relationships, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our workplace, we look and we basically go, how can I be used by God to implement this kingdom project, this new world project? How can I, how, what are his values that I can implement here in my family? What are his values that I can implement in our neighborhood? Huh, he kind of says loving people is important. Maybe I'll start to be more aware of my neighbors than I would. wonder who lives next door to me. Something as simple as that might be something you might do that implements the new world. Maybe have a block party in your neighborhood. Practice resurrection. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Let me close with this. The end of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul's talked all about the resurrection. I read from the early part of the chapter earlier. He talks about the first fruits. He gets to the very end. And he says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, we come, you tell me the perish, this perishable is putting on imperishable. I'm going, absolutely. 
Thanks be to God. I'm ready. Let's do it. And you expect it's time to sit down. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. That's it. Let's enjoy the victory cigar. Let's go on. But he says, therefore. And therefore is always based on. So based on the fact that he gives us the victory, he says, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And I just described what the work of the Lord was. Implementing God's new world. Abound in that. Love your neighbors. Love our cities. Love our communities. Love your families. Love where we work. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, what you do in the name and for the glory of Jesus Christ, we may not know how it's all put together, but the promise is it will not be in vain. He will, as the master sculptor, as the master artist, he will weave it together somehow into a beautiful tapestry that puts it together and will make the new heavens and the new earth. Do you believe this? Jesus asked Martha, and he's asking you, do you believe this? Be secure. You have an incredible foundation. Be hopeful. What a future. Whoever believes in me will never die. Resurrection has begun now, physical resurrection later. Be hopeful. Be intentional and be purposeful. Implementing God's new world. He's launched his new project and he's using us. Set your minds, your aims on things above. Let's pray. Yes, Lord, the resurrection truly does change everything. And I pray, Lord, that we would practice resurrection, that we would be people who set our hearts and our minds on things above. Father, thank you for your word, your truth. Thank you for the reality and the gloriousness of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.